Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of Roleplay Chat. I'm Matt, a game master who can't stop talking about role-playing games. In today's episode, we're going to talk about maps, using maps in role-playing games, making your own maps for role-playing games, and kind of everything in between. Before we get to that, though, I want to give you all a little bit of, uh, you know, the usual updates on the show and, and all of that good stuff. So first and foremost, the show now has a new affiliate link. I am now affiliated to 1985 Games. 1985 Games is an awesome place where you can buy dice, miniatures, and other related things for your tabletop hobbying. They sent me this really cool pack of story prompt cards. They're really cool. They have a big, uh, they have some that are good for you know starting your game. Some that are good for like the middle of the game, the climax moment, and then some that are good for kind of the wrap up. So it's really fun to mix those story cards together and use them in game. I'm really excited to give them a try. And even if I don't, just kind of looking at them, you know, for inspiration for the next story prompt. So anyway, if you want to buy some cool stuff from 1985 Games, the link for my affiliate link is in the show notes. So click that and then buy whatever you need to buy if you want to buy it, and a small fraction of that purchase, just like for my other affiliate links, will come to me. Another really quick update, I'm gathering together some Ottawa-based tabletop RPG creators, content creators, streamers, podcasters, writers, artists, and we're going to be posting a panel, hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm, I'm talking with the organizers of Can Games. It's a local tabletop RPG convention here in Ottawa, Canada. It's not nearly as big as the stuff out, you know, the, the PAX conventions or Gen Con or anything like that. But there's a lot of great folks in the community and I'm blessed to have one close to home. So I figured why not try to host some kind of panel there. And so far the organizers have been very open and receptive to the idea. So stay tuned on updates for that. I'm trying to work through a way to record that episode but I don't really have the right equipment to be doing that. I mean, I have stuff to record conversations online with my desktop computer, but I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to figure out doing that remotely with, you know, a panel of four other guests, including me. So I definitely don't have the equipment for that. But who knows? Maybe I can sort something out. Maybe if, you know, folks continue to support the show the way they have been, I'll be able to use some of that money towards buying equipment for that. At first, I wanted to buy a new microphone for me and my, my setup at home. But I, I think this one's not, you know, it's holding on. So maybe I can spend some money on that, uh, you know, spend the support money that, that folks sent my way. So anyway, that's my new goal is to get a new microphone for hosting that panel. But yes, without further ado, <laughs> let's move on. Let's talk about maps. I've got a fantastic guest waiting for us. So let's go right into the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to Roleplay Chat. I'm Matt, a game master who can't stop talking about role-playing games. Today, I'm here joined by a Dungeons & Dragons and Tabletop RPG encounter map cartographer, a professional tabletop RPG designer, and also a lich in training. Hi, Eric. Welcome to Roleplay Chat. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Considering 
that my internet just went out. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that we were able to do this and that we didn't have to reschedule again. <laughs> right. I feel like we, we've been trying to get this scheduled for probably like six months, but you know, adulthood is a thing that happens. So I'm told. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> One of these days I want to have a, a conversation about the balancing act that it takes to be a dungeon master and a parrot at the same time. I think that might alienate some people listening, <laughs> but I think it'd be a good conversation nonetheless. Uh, I, I, I feel you. My, my daughter's four. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's tricky. It's a tricky time, but uh, I'm glad we're here now and we're able to, you know, chat about role-playing games and about map making and all of that good stuff. Uh, before we do that, though, Eric, why don't you take the opportunity here to tell everybody about yourself, maybe give us your geek origin story, and tell us a little bit about the systems that you currently love running games for. Right. So obviously, I'm known on Twitter as Maps and Quest, also known as Mappy Mapface. My actual name's Eric. Now you know that bit of trivia. Um, you can find me. Um... <laughs> Is that like a hot thing? Should I not have said that? <laughs> No, no, we're good. We're good. My, my name has been dropped on Twitch streams, so it's okay when I, you know, the, the handful of one shots I've gotten to play in. So cool. you can find me on Twitter um, in underscore quests. You can find me patreon.com slash maps underscore in underscore quests. You can find me on itch with the rules light games that I make. Um, I'm most well known in the space for making fairly large encounter maps. Um, but then I also make rules like games that don't need maps. I'm not sure how much of a coherent business strategy that is, but it's my thing. So we got the that going. Wants what the heart wants, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> awesome, that's great. And as far as as far as role playing games, uh, what kind of games, you know, do you play? Do you like playing? What kind of systems do you like running? All that kind of good stuff. So I enjoy playing and running a wide variety of systems. Um, I've been playing and running role-playing games since the mid-90s with like AD&D 2E where I started um, back in back in the day when I was, you know, a, a teenager and, you know, a, a weird geeky teenager at that. So <laughs> I think everybody here <laughs> can resonate with that for sure. Um, and then throughout the years, we've done, I've done d and I've done, you know, Pathfinder when that came out. I've done some uh, VTM, got a lot of different systems that I've done over the years. Blades in the Dark. I Do you have a current in... favorite? Something that, that, you know, you really want to play now or you, you're itching to get your hands on now? So I want to get a Lancer game going. Mm. Um, because I, I, you know, once again, me being a giant nerd, um, love the idea of, you know, mechas and, you know, mech-based combat and the pilots role-playing that, that sort of thing. Um, I really want to get a, a Lancer game going or even get, you know, invited to play in a Lancer game. Just because <laughs> I've read through Lancer. I love the concept. I love the book. It's not, you know, in my usual wheelhouse, which is typically more kind of that, you know, high heroic fantasy genre, if you will, which is, you know, more yeah. in the realms of Pathfinder, D&D, &D, um, Dragon Age, that sort of thing. But I also like sci-fi, right? <laughs> so, so I've dabbled in, you know, some Starfinder and said, if it's a game, I'll, I'll at the very least read it. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. as an adult now, you know, with 
full-time job and wife and kid, it's harder to get things to table than I used to be many, many years ago. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. And then it's even harder sometimes to convince the other people that you play with to to dabble into something you are. At least for me, it, it's a little hard, you know. It's mm-hmm. people have to be feeling experimental to deviate from the usual, you know, the usual big games that we play at my table. So yep. I can I can sympathize with that for sure. Yeah. One of my players really wants to try um Cult of Cult of Vanity Lost, um, which hmm. I've read through and I've said, yeah, that is a heavy game compared to what we normally play at our table. That is a heavy game. I want to make sure that if we do that, everyone's ready for that. Because that game, <laughs> that, that game yeah. is not the zany hijinks that work in some other games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you definitely, you know, you, you hear stories of folks trying games out, like a, a game of Vampire, and it turns out being, you know, not their cup of tea because they're expecting it to be Maybe, you know, more what we do in the shadows, but it turns out that that's not the case. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, and here we are, we've now discussed several games where you don't really need encounter maps. And that's my thing, is encounter maps. So. But hey, you, you know, I, I I would argue that even if it's a game where you don't need an encounter map, an encounter map is probably still a good idea for, for a variety of reasons. And maybe we, we can right. dissect that. But let's let's keep going with the theme of you know your origin story and talk a little bit about maybe some of your starts in map making so what exactly got you into map making and and what convinced you that you know you know what i i should put this out into the world for people to to use in their games yeah so having played you know a lot of ttrpgs over the years i made hand-drawn maps you know 10 15 years ago just you know on you know 24 by 36 grid paper from a you know tear off sheet you get at staples or office depot whatever and then when covid hits and you know we had the whole pandemic a lot of games switched to being online i started experimenting with making maps digitally and my players my home game that I say home game, we're th- spread over three states and like 1,500 miles now. <laughs> 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 the country. Uh, but we play over Discord and that sort of thing. Um, in my home game, they said, you should probably try and start selling these. The- these are pretty good. Um, they're better than you know, some other ones that we've seen out there. And I said, sure, I'll give it a go. Why not? Let's try it. And that is how I wound up where I am today. Uh, <laughs> thanks for them giving me that push a couple of years ago. and. CLV. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's really great. And you know what? I I, I can sip not that I sell maps, but yeah, I, I love that feeling of making my own map and pulling it out and, and having the players, you know, around the table or or through the webcam for you know the past couple of years, getting that sense of excitement of like, this is my thing. I'm I'm the one that put this together and I know it inside and out. Uh, I it's a special feeling, I think. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk maps with you. Why don't we why don't we talk about some of our favorite maps? Is there a map that you've created that really stuck with you or maybe there's one that you're working on and you can you know what's one of your favorite maps that you've designed for home use, Patreon use, you name it. Yeah, so if we look at you know ones that are on my Patreon. So I preface this with saying 
all of my maps start in some way, shape, form, or fashion with something that I'm probably going to be using in my home game. That's cool. that's you know where they come from is that they start there and then they kind of branch out as I make variants and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where those maps come from. Um, one of my favorite maps I made just for kind of an outdoor encounter is a waterfall um, centered around a river coming down down over the waterfall, then further on down the river. Um, and I really like it because of the shadow work that I did on it to give it that depth so that you're, cool. you're really looking down a waterfall. And yeah. also just from a, you know, tactical standpoint, you can do a lot with that height differential. You know, if you've got, you know, 30 foot cliffs, you can have archers on top firing down. You could have people below seeking cover in the trees. There, there's a lot you can do with that. So that that's one of the my favorites there. Another one that I really really liked um, is a it called the Estancia map. It's a vineyard and winery map that I did. And it's very much inspired by Encanto as far as the house itself goes. <laughs> if you look at the house, it, it it's has you know that the big kind of central courtyard like the house in Encanto has a couple stories with balconies going around on the inside. There's the dad, there's the dad bleeding into the D and D right there. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my, my daughter was on a huge Encanto kick for a while and it's an, I can make this work for an encounter map. I think, you know, <laughs> tweak this here, tweak that there. We'll make this work. That's, that's really awesome. I, I love that you said too, that these maps have elevation. I think that that's something that can't be understated in an encounter map and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about like design principles and things like this. But as far as a map goes, as far as an encounter goes, having those layers, having having places where people can kind of create tactical advantage for themselves, mm, chef's kiss, that's like, that's what makes an encounter map awesome, right? If it's just a flat surface, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not as engaging for the people playing it. So I, I really like that. Is that, was that kind of part of why you made them that way or was that sort of a byproduct of of your creative process yeah so a lot of um what i do with the maps from that standpoint is i'm looking to give a lot of tactical things so that i can you know use them as the dungeon master or mm -hmm. game masters you know throwing things at the players and also so that the players can think about things a little more tactically and use things more tactically as well so in urban maps that i do you'll see a lot of things happening with varied lines of sight, with your know, buildings being close to each other. You'll see a alleyway that goes 10 feet and then splits in another direction, 10 more feet and kind of zigzagging through that sort of thing mm -hmm. so that you can get, get those varied angles and people hiding, sneak attack, all that fun stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really cool. So, so elevation is is something you're putting in there. You're putting in these tactical lines of sight pieces. Are there other elements that you consider to be uh, critical? Maybe critical is too strong a word, but are there other elements that you consider to be, as far as tactics go, important for incorporation in a map? And you, you you'll kind of bang your head against the wall to make sure they're all there, or is it kind of like a give and take? What's what's your it's a good opinion on that. The other thing that I I do a lot in my maps is incorporating things where there's cover. Uh, I know the cover rules in 
D&D specifically in 5e sometimes kind of get overlooked by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but those those cover elements where people can take advantage of those, where you know, a rogue can try and hide behind the stack of crates, or cool. the ranger can try and be behind a pile of boulders, that sort of thing, so that they have that cover and more you can do with it. So a lot of that rolls into putting things on the map that make it interesting to interact with. So maybe there are tables in a marketplace and your wizard says, I'm going to cast fireball to catch all those tables on fire. <laughs> Whatever works, right? Yeah, yeah. So giving those, giving those things that can do that, but also walking a fine line where I try not to put too much random extra detail, if that makes sense in a map, so that it has more general usability and more people might be able to use it. Um, as an example, there was a map that I used probably two years ago when I was first starting making maps that I got elsewhere. I think I found it on Reddit. I uh, just used my home game. And it was basically a mine shaft. And at the end of the mine shaft, there were a bunch of bodies like wrapped in spider webs. And my players were saying, well, why are those there? Because they were on the map. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They, they they were on the map that I used here. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, they're they're nothing. Ignore ignore the ignore the bodies and spider webs. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I got for you. That's a really good point. And you actually you brought up a lot of really interesting points. But as far as the details on the map go, it's really something that's I'm conflicted internally when I'm making my maps, what to include and what not to include because it's really this balancing act, right? When like you're saying, you don't want to, especially when you're creating maps for other people to be using, it's not only for yourself. If you're putting in details that imply something, then it becomes less, the broader appeal of it and the reusability of that map suffers. But at the same time, it's got to kind of create this spark of imagination, right? Because for, for me anyway, when I'm, when I'm making a map or, or playing in a game with a map, it, I find it helps me out infinitely. I, I have a really hard time playing any tabletop RPG without visual representations of the spaces that I'm in. And so having a map, whether there's a grid on it or not, maybe we can, I gotta earmark that for later. <laughs> but uh, having that map out is super important for me to understand the space, but maybe not so much what's in the space. And I think that's that's where there's that mm-hmm. distinction, right? Make the space understandable, make the tone of the space understandable, but let the player's imagination or the game master's imagination or some combination of those two things be what fill in the space. So how how do you go about, Eric, making a map that still conveys like a tone or, or a certain ambiance visually without necessarily, like you're saying, putting things that imply other things that create like this big rabbit hole that makes the map only usable in very specific circumstances. Right. So a lot of that can be done with lighting and lighting effects, if you will, from varying the ambient color of the atmosphere of the map to varying the lighting colors, that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. if you were to take a winter map, if you will, um, you can, make that seem a little more like it's really cold outside with using kind of lighter blue lighting 
and a more darker blue ambiance for the atmosphere itself. If you look at okay. it, it just looks like it's a little bit colder, uh, just with the lighting and that sort of thing. If you start doing things with kind of more of a, an orangey brown hue with the, the the ambient lighting of the map, you start to get more of like a sunrise type of feel to the map, or even like kind of a, a tropical sunrise type of feel to the map. So there's there's a lot you can do there just with lighting to give it that kind of feel uh, oh, that man. doesn't really affect the tone of the map necessarily. That's really cool. And then and then you're not even messing with the contents of it. <laughs> it's literally just lighting. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's hey, here's here's this winter map, and we're gonna you know we're gonna change the the ambient atmosphere color here. We're gonna do these lights here. We're gonna and then suddenly has something that actually looks and feels a little colder. Um, looking at it so yeah yeah and, and what about as far as like furnishings and things like that on a map what's the where does that live on the line of existing to help define the space versus existing and creating implications in the space like how do you feel like where does that live on that so in my mind that does both it helps define the space and can live within the space to create some of those tactical elements that we talked about. So yeah. if you had, say, a market district type of map, you can throw some tables around the square um, with crates and that sort of thing. And those are helping you. That's something you would expect in a market district. You're going to see, you know, street vendors, that sort of thing set up. That also creates elements for that tactical usage and interacting with the map itself for the players and dungeon master as well mm. that's cool yeah i like that i like that so i mean that 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 makes a whole lot of sense to me i think on paper and like in theory this is a lot easier to do and to talk about than doing it in practice have there been instances where you put something on a map and you're like oh no i shouldn't have put that there that that <laughs> that yes <made. laughs> Um, there was a map that I did. It was a, a free release map of a pirate raid on like a little fishing village. And I set it up so that you have a fairly narrow beach going back into this little fishing village. It's raised up and behind them is just a general kind of trail or tradeway type of road. And uh, along this trail or tradeway type of road, I'd set up you know, like these tables like the, the villagers were, you know, selling things to traveling merchants passing by, that sort of thing. Cool, and, you know, cool, after yeah. I put it out there, I thought, did I really need that on that map? <laughs> it's, especially because, you know, how, how the map, I wound up using it and how I've heard other people using it. They, that tradeway portion of the map didn't really even factor into whatever encounter they ran on it. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of extra fluff. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it could still probably be used for another another piece of the game. Um, mm -hmm. But you're right, as far as the encounter goes, it might be hard to integrate that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you know this looks really cool. You know, it gives you know a little more lived in feeling to it. And then after they said, was it really necessary for that? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's fair. That's fair. Um, and and that kind of brings me to another point. And you kind of talked about it briefly at the very beginning. You mentioned that you make very large maps, very large battle maps. 
what what was the reason behind that and, and what do you feel like that brings kind of to the table having a, a large map that you can use in a game so it it does it does a couple of things one it changes combat if you're thinking about it and how you're setting it up so that it's not just what you see a lot of times in or at least I've seen a lot of times in TOTM and you know older school play style where it's basically you have your four adventurers swinging at two monsters and they're standing right next to each other. Mm. So having a larger map gives you the freedom so that your ranged attackers and your spellcasters can show off the range of what they're doing a little bit, right? If you look at, say, a ranger shooting with a longbow in 5e, just as an example, the range on a longbow in 5e without any of the feats, the you know, elven accuracy, sharpshooter, that sort of thing, the effective range of a longbow before you're rolling at disadvantage is 150 feet. 150 feet in five foot squares is 30 squares. So in most maps that are you know, smaller than 30 by 30, that character's not even having to think about, do I want to you know, maybe move further away and put myself at, in range of disadvantage so that I can do something else? So I can sneak yeah. around and get myself into a better position. Or they're not even, you know, having to think about, do I actually want to move in into range where I'm not firing at disadvantage so that I can get to this point on the map, what have you. So that's mm -hmm. that's kind of one of those things that having the larger map opens up for you. The other reason why I like larger maps, uh, actually one of my patrons does this, <laughs> I, I know because he told me, is with a larger map, you can chunk that up and use it however you want to, right? So if you know you've got a 50 by 50 market district, but you are looking for you know a map of a 10 by 10 tavern, and that happens to be on that map, you can use just that tavern, right? You can open up in GIMP or Photoshop, whatever your, your preferred method of photo manipulation is, mm -hmm. and crop that down, and then just use that portion of the map. And then you get more reusability out of it too, because then you can use the whole map later on or just this corner over here that sort of thing yeah yeah those are two really good answers um and i i i have to agree with both of them i think the the idea of having an extremely large space for your players to play in and for like the you know the combat sandbox to live in it doesn't do any harm it's not gonna you know if they want to stand right in front of the monster and swing their sword over and over again that's their that's their prerogative. At least the space that they're in isn't forcing them to do that. Um, right. And, and and hopefully, you know, you're designing people listening. You're designing those encounters in such a way that that doesn't happen anyway. But at the very least, if your space is enabling you to move around by having dynamic things like a waterfall, let's move. Like you know, you can jump in the waterfall and and dive down. These are elements of a map that help to bring that to life uh, so yeah I, I commend that for sure i also like the idea of cropping it down and in part because and, and maybe you, know, you stop me if i'm if i'm wrong here eric but you don't necessarily need to use a battle map to illustrate battle right you could you could very well like you're saying take a market district 
put your players in a market district if combat happens because you know <laughs> they they start attacking one of the vendors or or vice versa then combat happens and the city guard can come in and and, and put a stop to it but if they want to just have a role play scene where they're doing their downtime and they're buying new equipment or or they're drinking a beer at the tavern you can zoom in you can crop it out you can have that visual representation of the space mm -hmm. without necessarily implying that they have to fight in it um so but i mean then again seems like twitter thinks otherwise so maybe now's the time uh, <laughs> of course twitter thinks otherwise <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so earlier today i i put out a poll asking folks and it's still it's still going on i mean by the time this episode airs it's not going to be live but it's still live as of the time of this recording and we have about between Mastodon and Twitter, we have about 275 votes. And of those, you know, 275 people, 75% of them say that if you pull, if a game master pulls out a map during their game, they're expecting combat. They're expecting a fight to happen, which is, I, I, I can't say it's surprising, but it still feels like a high number to me that 75% of people only experience maps or only expect to experience maps in a fight how, how does that make you feel eric so it is very much a pavlovian reaction from a lot of players um mm -hmm. just because that's how a lot of gms run their games right it's you don't see a map unless there's a fight about to happen so mm -hmm. in my games when obviously i have a backlog of a ton of maps right <laughs> <laughs> anyway so I just throw maps out there willy-nilly at random. My, my players have, for the most part, learned at this point that a map isn't necessarily there to facilitate combat. It can be there to facilitate other parts of the storytelling too, right? Setting the ambience for that market district or you're camping by this lake and this is kind of what it looks like, that sort of thing. Which I know that there are going to be some people who probably listen to this episode and say, well, that can just be done with theater of mind. And I say, yes, it can. But then you're running the risk of every time you pull out a map, your players know combat's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's, and I'm by no means saying that that's a right or wrong way to run your game. I'm just saying, if every time you pull out a map as a GM, you pull it out and say, roll for initiative, <laughs> then your players are going to expect that every time you pull out a map as a GM, they're going to go into a fight. So you're going yeah. to get that Pavlovian response. That's, you know, that's, You've conditioned them, if you will, for that. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember a long time ago now, it must have been four years ago, maybe five years ago, one of my buddies was running a game, and the first time he pulled out a map, it looked like a battle map. You know, it looked like something, it, it, it was one of those, like, you're on the road, there's the broken down cart, you know, you know the, you know the story here, right? And we're walking along, and not, quite literally nothing happened. There was nobody there. There was there was some stuff thrown about, and he was very precise about asking us where we were moving on the map, what parts, what things we were exploring, and when. Having us roll stealth checks and things like this. Somebody failed the stealth check, and we were like, "Okay, let's throw that. Let's throw it down. Let's go. Let's let's. We're ready to tango." And nothing happened. And, and later, I asked him, "I'm like, why did you make? Why did you do that?" And he said, well, there was a trap you could have triggered, but you didn't. And I wanted to make sure that you guys understood that just because a map was coming out, it 
didn't mean we were fighting. And it really kind of just that one instance laid the groundwork moving forward. And we don't use maps in we didn't use maps in that game, you know, every day, every game, every time we played. But it, it was a little bit more theater of the mind. But then whenever the map came out, we always defaulted to that first time where we thought, okay, you know what? Doesn't necessarily mean something's in the, something's hiding in the bushes, or it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to fight the person. Like we don't have to fight the NPCs that are here. Right, right. Uh, the, the, the old eight bit D and D YouTube video. I attack the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, for anybody listening who voted on that poll saying that maps to them mean a fight is coming, I. I hope you you can at the very least consider the option that it doesn't mean that. Um, and if you're a game master who's constantly pulling maps out only for fights, again that it's you know it's your prerogative. But I would urge you to consider trying to do the you know to do something else. Bring a map out for an exploration piece. Bring a map out for a puzzle. I think maps do a wonderful job at like making a visual puzzle that people can, mm -hmm. you know, one of those like Zelda style push the boulders around, move the water around, whatever. Uh, if you subscribe to puzzles in your game anyway. <laughs> right. And, and maps can also be used there for things like we're going to throw it back here. Once again, talking in D and D terms, just because I know for, for the encounter maps that I make, D and D is my biggest target audience. Right. So yeah, yeah, it beats fair. to that. So you can also use them for, if we throw it back in addition to 4E, um, one of the things that I actually really liked in 4E that I'd wish they'd found a way to do better and keep in five year skill challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I love, so, I still I, do them. I yeah, I, I, I throw at my players too. Um, so those skill challenges, a map can actually aid that really, really well. So that they can you know see and have a better idea of what they're looking at, especially when, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I know that there are individuals out there um, who, who can't visualize things in their, in their mind, right? That those, those people do exist. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, name it. Aphantasia, something like that, I think. Uh, I, I probably just butchered and said the wrong thing. Regardless. So, who can't visualize those things in their mind, no matter how well you describe it. So, maps can help those people, too. For me, one of the reasons that I use encounter maps a lot is specifically with combat and that sort of thing. While I can visualize the space, what I can't do is keep track of all of the distances, uh, which are actually really important in D&D Pathfinder and a lot of other games in that vein, where you're working with discrete distance measurements for pretty much everything in combat, yeah, absolutely. Or, or, or any other any other thing you do in the game, almost is working with a discrete measurement of distance. So me, myself, and I in my brain can't keep all the distances right without having something there anyway. In which case, it might as well be fair to my players and have something that they can see and keep track of those distances on too. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think w when we consider combat, at least in some, you know, the games that you talked about, Pathfinder, D and uh, I, I feel like Starfinder's like this too. Yep, Starfinder too. Like when when you have a game that gamifies combat, like it's a game within a game almost, mm -hmm. right? It's it's this added piece with all these extra rules and all this extra nuance. It's like, like you're saying, Eric. It's kind of impossible to play that as written without without having some kind of representation to to have these measurements all kind of in front of you i i'd be hard pressed 
to find somebody who could do that fully theater of the mind so that you know actually keeping track of those distances if you're hand waving it that's another story but right and you're and this is by no means to poo poo on people who run things theater of mind of course not yeah of course not by no means what i have seen time and time again with theater of mind combat is essentially people saying we'll run it better you basically hand wave distance rules and my brain says then what's the point of having all these discrete units of measure in the game you're playing? There are other games, you know, in the PBTA realm and that sort of thing, you know, Hmm. Dungeon World, et cetera, that don't have those discrete distance measurements where you're looking at things in terms of, you know, melee, near, far, that sort of thing. Exactly. So if you're kind of hand-waving those things, then, and once again, I'm, if you do that, that's fine. Do whatever you know you want to do at your table, right? That just doesn't, for me, work in my brain. I I can't just hand wave those discrete distances and say, well, it doesn't matter that the longbow has a further range than the shortbow because we're playing with, you know, melee near and far, and they can both hit from far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, I'll even throw in like I'm a, I'm a very narrative player. I I rarely and game master. I rarely worry about too much of the rules. However, I still see the advantage of having a map out for narrative purposes, right? Mm-hmm. It, it tells a better story. You can visualize a better story, at least it, from, my, from my point of view. If exactly this, you have this huge map, and you know what? The archer with the longbow is going to decide to run back, run around the tavern, climb up to the roof, and take a shot from from up there because tactically that's a better decision and you know you might be able to visualize that all in your head but i certainly can't especially when it's happening in a massive combat where a fire elemental is burning down you know the town square and there's like 15 to 25 minions running around and the party has six players that they've recruited three NPCs and there's the town guard. and There's just too many variables for mm-hmm. me to do that in my brain. I can't tell that story to its full potential without having those things kind of positioned on something. So, yeah, I think we're both very violently agreeing to the value <laughs> of that. <laughs> we are. Is it? And, and there are some things that I, I will, you know, run theater of mind. Like, chase scenes which sometimes happen right i'll run those i'll frequently run those theater of mind uh, just because it's a little bit easier with people you know running and some and bad guy running away that sort of thing um except for the one instance that happened in my game a few months ago where the rogue shot the npc who was trying to escape and then realized that he got sneak attack damage and killed the person who was trying to escape who they actually wanted to question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sure they planned for a long time about that, too. They were like, oh, we're going to capture this person and we're going to interrogate them and get extra intel. And then, oops. (laughs) Oopsie. Oopsie. Yeah. Yeah. You you said you decided to shoot him with a crossbow as he was running away. Um, You You can't non-lethal damage a crossbow to the head. That's just not... (laughs) Uh, so, 
yeah, yeah. So, and, so, and there are things that I'll run theater of mind, but generally speaking, I prefer maps for many of the reasons that you laid out and I've laid out as well, that they can help with that visualization aspect. They can help with the distance tracking aspect, all of those things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm gonna change gears and let's 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 maybe pivot to something else, still yeah. map related. But one thing that I couldn't help but think of is that with the advent of virtual tabletop games, like you know, virtual tabletop um, systems, is that what it's called? I don't even know. Virtual tabletops like Roll Twenty and and all all of these games mm -hmm. that you can play online. How has that changed, if at all? your maps and your process for making maps like are there different things for people to be taken into consideration if they want to make a map so, is it if it's virtual versus pen and paper table like how how do, how do those things pit up against each other so with vtt's roll 20 dungeon fog what have you whichever one your preferred vtt is they give you the ability to actually do bigger maps <laughs> than, than what a lot of people could do before, right? So if you're you're sitting around your kitchen table or your dining room table, you know, playing D and D with your friends or Pathfinder, Starfinder, whatever, right? You can only do so big of a map because that's the space you have that you can work with. Yeah, yeah. Right? there's pens and papers and books you're, and stuff. Right, you're, you're generally getting like a 24 by 36 map. Like that's about as big as you're going to get usually in those in those spaces. Um, unless you happen to have a really big gaming table at your disposal, which some people do, and I envy those people. I would like mm -hmm. a really big gaming table at my disposal one day, right? <laughs> so with, the v with VTTs, you can actually do a lot bigger maps than you could, than you can in a lot of in-person gaming spaces. So that changed a lot of how I approach making maps. So when I you know did them all kind of pen and paper playing around the table with friends before, if it was a big map, it was usually cut up into, you know, a few different sections that they, you know, they're traversing and that sort of thing. Just because smaller space that I had that I could put a map on. Mm -hmm. With you know, roll twenty, roll twenty is the one I use. I'm not getting paid any money by Roll20 to say this, so please, nobody take this as an endorsement of Roll20, um, <laughs> <laughs> necessarily. So you can use a bigger map there. You can throw a 50 by 50. I've got a map in my home game that they're setting up for actually a fairly large and climactic battle on that is 60 by 70 for, for the battlefield. Um, nice. There's going to be a lot of bad guys. I'm actually going to be using minions rules from MCDM's uh, Flea Mortals Kickstarter. Cool. Um, for you for that, and which are actually very similar to the 4E minions rules. If you remember the 4E, yeah, minions like rules, the swarms or whatever they were called. Were they called minions? I think they were called. Or, yeah, I think yeah. so. I'm trying to remember, it's been a, it's been a couple of years. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time, but yeah, no, I love yeah. minion rules. I think having. Yeah. I, for some reason, I call them swarms. Maybe that's like Warhammer bleeding into. Yeah, they might be Warhammer bleeding. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so that's. So you can do a big map like that. Uh, other things that you can do with VTTs, a lot of VTTs support dynamic lighting so that you can have site blockers set up on the map so that each player's token can only see you know what they can see based on lighting. So if it's dark out and they have dark vision then 
because everybody has dark vision. You got to say it out loud <laughs> to make sure everyone oh, knows yeah. you have dark vision, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's a rule in, in, in the player's handbook, right? It's on like page 30 or something. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you yell it out every time you enter a cave. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> so you can set it up so that on a lot of your VTTs, so that that represented on what the player can see on their end. You know, they can cool. see that 30 feet. Yeah. You, have, you have those sight blockers so that it can create a slightly more immersive experience so that they can't just see, you know, the whole map. So there's a lot there that's changed how I approach map making, and it's given me actually freedom to make bigger maps. Like I have like dungeons that I make usually once a month that are like 100 by 100 grid. That's something that I would have never been able to do before or really effectively use because I would have had to print it out in sections, basically, in staples or Office Depot or Office. Is Office Max even around anymore? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> some store that does wide format printing, regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you, you would have to separate it. Um, I don't think it would have... Like, put it on like a roll maybe but yeah it, i made a an arena map a month or two ago that's like 60 by 70 like that's something that i would have never been able to do before if i was having to print a map out but i can pop mm -hmm. it in a vtt and use it yeah so that's, that's a really good point it's definitely one of the strengths of the you know virtual games is this ability to use to use the technology that kind of baked in to the vtts mm -hmm. like like you're saying dynamic lighting and whatnot um i'm i'm a physical guy through and through i i try my best to play my games in person when i can but yeah you, you're you're 100% right there's there's not a whole lot that a physical game can compete with as far as as those tools go uh, the the only thing i can think of is is trying to like you're saying divide it up make yep. several small maps that come together to be one big map um i've i've messed around with scale also uh, especially in environments where combat is less frequent so i wouldn't necessarily do this in a dungeon but you know you, you draw the map out at a quarter scale so instead of having a grid over it i just have the map out on the table it's a quarter scale so every every player is moving like you put your little figurine on maybe to kind of get a sense of your your general space but uh you can still get a sense of the space and where you can go because it's smaller so you get mm -hmm. you get a bigger map in a smaller scale yep uh i also use i've been experimenting quite a bit and maybe this isn't really map related so sorry for the tangent eric but i've been experimenting with like tape measures so i i've done away with grids in my game for the past year or so and we just use tape measures, like good old war game style tape measures that I bought at a local craft store. Mm -hmm. They're like small little plastic, like cheap tape measures. Mm -hmm. But um, and, and yeah, and, and it it kind of creates a, an interesting sense of of gameplay because now players can see how far the enemy is on the map, but they can't go and count the squares and be like, is he in range or not? I'm like, ah. Attack and we'll see. <laughs> uh, so it's it's created a, an interesting an interesting way to play the game for me personally. But uh, that that in any sense, that's my response to you could potentially still have big spaces with quotes, 
You just have to scale them down. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, in, in once again to reference back to D and D here, I know in several of their adventures they have maps that are kind of done at that scale. In the Tyranny of Dragons modules, which I'm actually playing through right now oh, cool. <laughs> with a group of friends, also over Discord. I was most of them are up in the Massachusetts, New Hampshire area. Quite a few of the the maps in there are done in kind of that scale, where one grid square is ten feet and not five feet, so that you can you know get that bigger entire castle into that map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's one potential solution. I don't know mm -hmm. if people want to try it. I'd I'd recommend giving it a shot. Um, I do also you know talking about dungeons makes me wonder. I feel like I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your position on this. As far as a map goes, how does your process change if you're mapping out a dungeon versus mapping out, you know, like a town or a waterfall or some kind of natural landscape that is perhaps more open? And mm -hmm. Are there differences, I guess, first? And if so, what, what are those differences? Yeah, so when I'm doing a dungeon... A dungeon for me is far more about the rooms in the dungeon than it is the hallways and corridors that connect those rooms. Mm -hmm. Now, you can still do a lot of interesting things with hallways and corridors, you know, creating curving hallways and that sort of thing to play with lines of sight and, you know, give yourself some more interesting things there. But for me, a dungeon is far more about the rooms in the dungeon than the hallways, tunnels, what have you, connecting those rooms. So, you know, you can have traps in those in those hallways if you want to, that sort of thing. And generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of, we're going to go on a tangent here, a lot of your traditional kind of D&D &D TTRPG dungeon traps, um, just because mm -hmm. they're very much, their HP drains on the party. That's yeah, that's literally that's all a lot of them do. They, they, they drain HP from the party, so they're softened up for, you know, the encounter with the dungeon boss. That's literally all they're doing. So I, I like to do a little more flavor on my traps there when I do traps. Things that, you know, maybe they restrain you for a minute unless you can break free of the restraints. And while they restrain you, it sounds an alarm and a couple goblins come to, you know, try and attack you while you're restrained. That sort of thing. Just things that do have more interesting effects than just being a straight HP drain on the party to soften them up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the best traps are the ones that separate the party. That's my opinion. That's my hot take. Uh, doesn't even have to take any HP away, mm -hmm. but you step on a pressure plate. Now there's a now there's a grate between the two people at the front and the two people at the back. Figure it out. <laughs> find find a way to get back together, or you're in yeah. trouble. Um, but yeah, I hear you absolutely. And and so so you're focusing more on the rooms, focusing more on the contents of the rooms. So does it kind of become a collection of interconnected small maps is that is that kind of how you it, it does that a lot um and and you know kind of keeping within a theme because one of my things with dungeons is so if we actually sit do a dungeon per the actual you know merriam webster definition of what a dungeon is then it's a prison beneath a castle um and i think you can do a lot more with the idea of a dungeon crawl than just being a prison beneath a castle. Absolutely. So, so I've done, you know, dungeon crawl maps. I have one that is an abandoned potions factory. 
So there's a nice. lot of environmental stuff that's going on there where, you know, you might go in one room and, oop, whatever got mixed in this room, it's making you nauseous, make a constitution saving throw. Uh, mm-hmm. um, that's dunge- cool. um, I have a couple dungeons that are basically st- underground strongholds of warlords type of thing. So I, I think there's a lot more you can do with that idea and thematically with whatever you're doing with that dungeon than just here's a cave. It's a really big cave system. Have fun. Um, or, you know, here's a traditional dungeon beneath a castle. Clear it out of the zombies. Have fun. So that's that's my take on it, is you can do a lot more with the idea of a dungeon crawl mm-hmm. than just the traditional dungeon. Uh, taking those ideas and premises that you have in, in the traditional dungeon, but applying them to kind of other genres and ideas there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think a dungeon, like you're saying, really shouldn't be the traditional definition, like under the castle, the prison under the castle. It, it should be, or it's more fun if it's a variety of things. And these maps that you're saying kind of help differentiate them from one another by giving that flavor, by giving that context of why this space exists. Like mm-hmm. you're saying, it's a potion. It's beneath the potion factory. Okay, well, there's going to be p- players who kind of start conceiving of ideas of a, what would be under a potion factory. There'd be like an inventory room. There might be a place where they make the bottles. There might be a place where they fill the bottles. There might be a place where they test things. I don't know. So it kind of helps players start to create these ideas, and then you could kind of mm-hmm. mess with those expectations as the game master, as the person who's laying out the map. Um yeah, I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Uh, one difference that comes to mind, too, for me, especially mechanically, is that in the dungeon versus the open space, you kind of have play with, like, the... Um, I think it was Matt Coville who talked about the, like, reverse dungeon effect or, or what have you, where, like, the players all go in and then everybody attacks them all at once. Uh, so... One thing that I like to do when I'm mapping out dungeons for my for my table is to make sure that there's something that enables the different rooms to kind of be like vocally apart from one another. So mm-hmm. maybe there's an alarm system and they could sound the bad guys could sound the alarm, but it's not gonna literally call every single bad guy in the in the dungeon, quote unquote dungeon, to attack the party. Right. Whereas when I'm in an open space, if I'm planning something out you know, on a beach or in a town square or what have you, I feel like that issue becomes a different consideration. Because mm-hmm. if you're if you're in a beach, you can run away and hide in the trees. You can jump in the boat and just sail off. You, you, you can you have an easier escape path in these open spaces versus, you know, you're seven rooms into a dungeon. Mm. <laughs> you can't really run away. You you can try, but there's going to be stuff kind of blocking your way and, and obstructing your your map right. out. So I, I think those are things that people should consider when they're making maps. At least in my in my opinion, consider that you you know you might want to find ways to allow your players to escape the dun- multiple ways to escape the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Have a lot of entries and exits, yep. or have rooms that kind of circle back on each other. It kind of consider the layout. More than I would in a, in a more open space where escape is easier, if that makes sense. Yep, it does. And and one of the other things that I do in my dungeons is there is a lot of interconnectedness of the rooms. Mm-hmm. So 
that you don't have just, you know, one right way to go through the dungeon. In fact, it would be entirely possible, depending on how you, you know, went through and approached it, you might miss half the dungeon. You might. Yeah. If yeah, you decided yeah, yeah. to turn right here instead of turning left, it's possible. Especially, you know, when we're talking about huge, you know, 100 by 100 dungeon. dungeon. So Absolutely. That, I think, is also an important aspect of the design there, is making it so that it's not, you know, just a straight A to B railroad story for the dungeon. So that there are different ways players can go through it to to try and get to the end, or maybe they've been sent down to the dungeon on a quest to kill the evil lich who lives at the back of it. Whatever, you know, whatever reason they're in the dungeon on this particular mm-hmm. Tuesday, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love that. I love that. That's that's cool. That's really cool. Um, I'm looking at the clock, and I want to make sure we touch on a couple of other uh, little mm-hmm. uh, little topics. Including including some stuff from Twitter and Mastodon. We got a few comments that I think might be interesting for us to explore. So really quickly, Eric, I'll I'll throw one other uh, question at you, and it's on the use of maps. So mm-hmm. what? How would you encourage people to? And and maybe we can divide it into virtual versus versus physical. How would you recommend people use maps in their game? Because I I don't think. And it's not a cut and dry question or answer. I think it depends on the table and the people playing. But in your experience, what's the best way to use a map? So using maps, this is going to sound really dumb probably, but you use them often. That That's my biggest piece of advice there. I'm just, you know, where we started this conversation, you know, almost an hour ago at this point, we were talking about people having that knee jerk reaction to a map coming mm-hmm. out that a map comes out and it's combat so i think one of the things there just use them often be it vtt or on your personal table at home even if you're, you know you're drawing something out on a 24 by 36 grid of paper i know if we look at critical role season one um back back god however many years ago that was it feels a lot longer ago than it actually was <laughs> um one of the things i saw you know that matt mercer do he would frequently you know draw things out on that 24 on that you know graph paper grid just to kind of illustrate what was going on around the party sometimes um even if they weren't necessarily in combat for skill challenges and that sort of thing so that's my piece, biggest piece of advice there is use them often uh just because not just the combat aspect of things but also as you've touched on here matt as well the storytelling aspect the visual aspect the immersion aspect of it it can help with all of those things if you're, you know, you're using them properly, it can help with how you're setting and describing a scene, that sort of thing. That's a good point. Yeah, descriptions become a heck of a lot easier, at least for me, when there's something there. You know, I don't have to remember, you know, the, the five things that I got to list out in the room. It's there. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> it helps remind me. <laughs> that's yeah. That that's that's really good advice, and I I would echo it. I think using them often. They they can pr- present a bit of a challenge to people that don't want their imagine like their imagination to be quote unquote stifled by what they see, but I think that falls back to how the map is designed in the first place. If the map is designed like you were saying with minimal uh, content within it, but still enough to kind of illustrate the space and explain and give a sense of the space that's that the players are playing in, then I feel like it's hard to say that it's going to stifle creativity. I, I feel like that argument kind of disappears. But 
it, it's hard for me to have this conversation without somebody defending that point. <laughs> right. And, and, and then we've seen that, you know, the, the whole maps versus theater of mind, you know, what have you, we've seen that discourse, God, how many times on Twitter? Times. You know, yeah. we, we see it, you know, at least once every two to three months, right. It, it, it crops up. And I feel like there's people who like expect me as a map maker to say something like, yeah, I would prefer everyone to use maps. I want everyone to use my maps and join my Patreon. That that is that would be my <laughs> ideal world scenario. Um, and I could retire in a few years and just kick back and live the life. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's obviously very self-serving. <laughs> it's a motivation. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to, you know, whatever works at your table. Um, but also, you know, keeping in mind that there are people who we know can't visualize those things or you know me i can't keep track of all the distances i can't so even if i'm playing in a playing in a game where theater of mind combat is happening i can't keep track of those distances unless i'm writing them down on a piece of paper anyway in which case boy me scribbling down these distances is really helping with my immersion right now um <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting that you say that eric because we got a question on mastodon from Tony Malazzo at mastodon.cloud. And they talk about one of the best maps that they've ever experienced. And this was a map, a complete city map of Duskfall, the setting, like the default setting for Blades in the Dark, which in my opinion is a game that is extremely conducive to playing theater of the mind. It's powered mm -hmm. by the apocalypse. It's really, really hacked powered by the apocalypse but it's powered by the apocalypse nonetheless and you know that tony goes to say that you know every street was named every building was labeled everything about dusk vault was there like it was it was available to them as a player and as a and, and to the game master so it's really interesting to me that you know we've been talking a lot about the advantages that a map brings in a game that's crunchy mechanically and you know has these distances for combat and whatnot but I, I think we can't discount the value that a map brings even to a game that's mechanically light like dusk of all mm -hmm. uh, it's not dust like blades in the dark that mm -hmm. you know encourages people to quite literally bypass the planning stage of their heists and then do it through flashbacks so <laughs> i think i think it's really it, 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 that comment opens my eyes even more that, you know what? Yeah. Maps are good all the time, everywhere. Right. If you and don't think it's useful, use it anyway. See what happens. <laughs> just try it. Just try it. You know, <laughs> just put, get our foot in the door. Just try it. Come on, man. Just try it. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and I think that's a really good point because there, you know, we're getting away from the realm of, you know, encounter maps and combat maps, and we're getting into, you know, city and region maps. But those can help with player immersion too, right? Mm -hmm. So that they know what the world looks like as a whole. So they know their character in this particular instance in Dustfall, they might be able to say, okay, well, I grew up on this street over here. I grew up on that street. That's where I grew up. That's where all my friends lived. And then this thing happened. That's how I relate to this street over here, that sort of thing. So those can help with that as well, regardless of you know what the game is, but it can help with that immersion too. So that you can actually see and visualize on a map kind of you know what's going on around you. That's something that we as people actively do. And even if we're not thinking about it, a lot of us are kind of 
we actively kind of build a map of an area as we're driving around without even realizing it. You eventually, you know, remember, okay, so I'm going to go down Memorial Drive and then turn right on Tyler Avenue and then turn left after a mile on Greenway Drive, what have you, that sort of thing. So, because we are very much spatially related creatures in that way uh, for, you know, even just getting around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I like that you brought up the, you know, the world maps, the regional maps. I think it, it, like you're saying, adds another layer to the immersion. It adds a new tool in the toolbox of the players to understand the space that they're in, uh, create stories. The, the mm-hmm. map, I, I feel like oftentimes we can misconstrue the idea of a map as being a complete picture that leaves no room for interpretation. But I think that that's very far from the truth, right? You can have a world map where there's just forests and mountains and there's a couple of big cities, but that doesn't mean that it's all filled in. I think the same level of abstraction can be applied to a combat map. At any micro or macro level, a map Mm -hmm. can have levels of abstraction that still allow for interpretation and imagination and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if we go back to, you know, one of my favorite maps ever in D&D, it's actually the map of the Sword Coast in 5e that Mike Schley did. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it's a gorgeous map, absolutely gorgeous map. And two, you know, it, it helps me with that, you know, immersion, setting aside the fact that the Sword Coast is basically Wizards of the Coast's default setting for 5e and adventures in 5e. But when I am playing a game there, you know, it helps with the immersion in that, because if you're, if you're from that area, you would know where a lot of those geographical points of reference were. And it's also, there are places that don't have names in there where you, you have that ability to, you know, kind of world build too. Um, So that's, that's my personal kind of favorite regional world map. And, and just one, because it's an absolutely gorgeous map. I'm a huge fan of Mike Schley. Um, I, I think his stuff is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'm familiar with the map that you're talking about. I'll have to go. I'll have to go look for it. Uh, it was actually um, so Wizards actually put it. Um, it was back in 2015, 2016, I think. Um, for the, um, they did a thing with Extra Life. Uh, as a charity event, they raised enough money that basically they put it out for free on their website. Cool. That's super cool. I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. And you said something that's really neat, uh, Eric there about how the character would know, but the player doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that also applies to like a battle map, right? The map is there to help bridge the gap between what the character sees and what the player sees. So the character would see the map in, in real Mm -hmm. life, right? So having it there to help, the characters and the player kind of merge into one person mm-hmm. uh, is, is definitely helpful. We got one other question, and then maybe we'll uh, we'll start doing wrap up. And this one's on Twitter, and this is from uh, a doctor underscore HTTV. Doc is a friend of the show. He has a really cool Pokemon actual play podcast that folks should go check out called Tall Grass Encounters. Um, and Doc asked, Doc asks, what's the best way? to remember to incorporate cover and encourage its use. My first thought was to make enemies use it first as a reminder. 
Yeah, so, so having enemies use it, um, I actually have in my in my in my you know D and D notebook, if you will, my my TTRG notebook, the one specifically for the D and D game I run for my friends. I, I do have in there like all the cover rules. Um, I for a while I actually had because my games run over Discord, I just had a sticky note up on my monitor, <laughs> the cover rules, um, because I know the cover rules are when they're one of the easiest rules to forget in combat. They really are. Mm-hmm. It. But then once my players started picking up on it, they started using it. And, you know, hey, remember, I have a plus two to AC right now because I have cover, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's a good I think that's really good advice. Um, I'll, I'll also add you can make enemies use it to remind folks you can mm-hmm. make NPCs use it or even have NPCs encourage players to use it. Right. Like if you enter a space and there's an enemy there and the NPC grabs a table and flips it over and then hides behind it well that just that kind of telegraphs the fact that hey there's cover in this space let's use it or let's make our own or whatever so i think that that's a that's another way to to have it baked in maybe have it break too I'm trying to think live on air here of other other ways to to have folks yeah. and, and a lot of it is that you know kind of reminding yourself of the rules thing it's you know, mm-hmm. I know a lot of DMs who, you know, DM in person, the, the back of their, the back of their DM screens frequently is, you know, just a lot of oft overlooked or forgotten about rules or rules that are hard to remember or sticky notes with, you know, NPC names on them that they forgot. Um, <laughs> in, in, my, in, my, in my home game that I run, there's an important NPC and I just blanked on his name. Oh no. <laughs> just, just blanked. <laughs> Yeah, I accidentally called three NPCs Marion last time I played. Like literally on Sunday, there was a car- there was an NPC in a letter whose name was Marion, and then there was another NPC like in a shop, and they were like, "Oh, what's your name?" And he's like, "My name's Marion," and I'm like, "Oh sh- shoot, <laughs> why did I do that?" And then, and then the third time, I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm I'm retconning this right now. This is gonna get way too confusing for everybody. There's no way that the cleric." Is also called Marion. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, I hear you. I, hear so, you. I, I retconned a uh, an NPC's name in, in my home game that ring just because we had there was a character who the players eventually wound up killing in a combat um, who was basically a, a would be pirate lord, would be king of the pirates, and they could never remember his name. They could only remember that he he happened to wear you know kind of tight pants, so they just started calling him Commodore Tight Pants, and I basically. Said, <laughs> That's hilarious. That's his name. He's Commodore Tight Pants now because that's, that's hilarious. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And there's no like you can't change their mind, even if you tried. So right. you might as well, you know, you might as well join them in that. Uh, absolutely. I love that so much. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Mappy, or thank you, Eric, I should say, for for all the advice and and the recommendations and and the stories about map making. Before you know, we get to conclusions. I did want to give you one last opportunity to say anything you might have not had the opportunity to say as it relates to maps. So map making, map using maps, any any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share? So when it comes to using maps, be it in a VTT or in-person setting, what have you, the biggest thing to remember at your table is, you know, you don't have to use maps like mine from my patreon even though i do have a lot of free maps on there too that people should probably check out 
but you don't have to be using you know these paid maps you can use whatever works at your table for for you using a map whether it's like i said earlier you know just drawing with a sharpie on grid paper or using a dry erase board whatever works at your table up, up to and including i've seen some very fancy setups where people mounted a flat panel tv under a table and, and displayed map on that. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways you can do it and by no means do you know you have to use you know, the beautiful ones that you know i make or that you know tom cartos makes or susan peku or you know whoever else um making these these gorgeous maps you don't have to use our maps you know you, you can make your own um in fact making my own is how i got started into doing this um i would also you know encourage anyone who says you know i think i make some pretty good stuff with my maps maybe i should give this a go give it a go give it a try i i, I encourage you to do so uh, just because it's a lot of fun I think that there's room for a lot of people in the hobby, especially, you know, when we're talking about a lot of us are, you know, more hobbyists, that sort of thing. And I'm not probably getting rich or retiring off of this, but it's fun. It's a fun space. And give it a go if if you want to. If you, the, the worst that can happen is, you know, it doesn't work out, in which case it didn't work out. Best case scenario is it works out really, really well and you get to retire early, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love to encourage folks. I think you should certainly go check out Eric's Patreon. It's going to be linked up down below. Not down below. I'm not on YouTube. I keep saying that. I don't know why I say that. It's going to be in the show notes for the podcast. So please go go take a look. Like Eric said, there's some really awesome free maps there. And there's even better paid maps. I know that you also do all kinds of different lighting, daytime, nighttime, in the rain you know a different variety of of um environmental effects on the mm -hmm. map so folks should definitely check that out why don't you remind everybody eric where they can find you where they can find your patreon and yep. all of so that. you can find me on twitter which is the platform where i am the most active probably because i have add so it's the perfect platform for add uh, on twitter um at in underscore quests uh you can find me on patreon at patreon.com slash maps underscore in underscore quests or you can probably just google maps and quests at this point and probably find one of those links <laughs> <laughs> awesome awesome well yeah so again i would love to encourage folks to go check all of eric's stuff out you could also find me on twitter that's at roll underscore play underscore chat and if you didn't want to be limited to the character limit of twitter you could always send me an email at contactroleplaychat at gmail.com. If you wanted to support the show, you can do so in a number of ways. You can do so without spending any money at all by reviewing the podcast, giving it a five star on, on iTunes or Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever other podcasting platform you're using, or by spreading the good word of Roleplay Chat to your friends, the people that you play tabletop roleplay games with. If you wanted to support the show with your money, I'd be very grateful for that as well. There's a Ko-fi link and affiliate links that you can click in the description of the podcast. Thank you again for being here to talk to me about maps and map making and map design. I appreciate yep, you taking you. the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's 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 been fun. Uh, it's been been a great conversation. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I hope we've managed to convince some people. Emil, you're listening to this. Use more maps, man. Let's go. <laughs> but yes, I hope we've convinced some people to use maps, uh, be them 
Eric's or your own. And with that, let's call it a chat.